There is a term used in professional sports called a franchise player. Uh, The franchise player is not just the best person on the team. They are usually the person around whom the rest of the team is built. So think about it this way. Uh, When you think of the Chicago Bulls back in the 90s, you think of who? Michael Jordan. Uh, You know, today when you think of the Packers, you probably think of Aaron Rodgers. When you think of the Golden State Warriors, you think of who? Steph Curry. Uh, When you think of the uh, New England Patriots, you think of who? Tom Brady. Uh, The franchise player is the face of the sports team. Uh, They are the cornerstone of that organization. Today we come to the end of our uh, series called Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And we have looked at many different ways that we can defend our faith. But today we want to look at uh, Christianity's franchise player. The most important person in our faith by far is the person of Jesus Christ. Why should you believe in Christianity? This morning, I'd like to offer you one final reason. Jesus Christ. Uh, Over the past few months, we've talked about why you can believe in God because there's evidence of intelligent design. Uh, We've talked about how the Bible is trustworthy. Uh, We've talked about how God alone provides an explanation for suffering and evil and so many other things that we hope that they have been helpful uh, to you. But today we want to focus our attention like a laser beam on one towering person, Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, the most compelling reason to believe in Christianity is the person of Jesus Christ. The best reason I believe there is to embrace the Christian faith is the person of Jesus Christ. This issue is so important. Uh, Over a century ago, Soren Kierkegaard said this, Who is Jesus is the most important question in human history. Every man must make up his mind about him and can't postpone that decision. The eternity of every man hangs upon that decision. I agree with that. And so today, let's ask and answer that question. Who was and is Jesus? Maybe you're here today and you're more skeptical. Maybe you used to be a Christian, but for some reason you walked away. I don't know. I'm not here to judge you. Maybe you have some doubts. Maybe you've read some of Bart Ehrman's books and you think maybe the Gospels have been corrupted or or perhaps they're not trustworthy. Maybe you've heard someone say that Jesus' divinity is something that got made up a few centuries after he died by the church. Or maybe you had a bad church experience. And I get that because churches are not perfect. Pastors aren't perfect either. I can tell you that for sure. But that's not Jesus. That's people. And so the question today is about Jesus. And so here's how I want to challenge you. Would you be willing to consider, would you be willing to keep an open mind about this important question this morning? Who is Jesus? Now, to begin, let me just say up front that some people actually say this question cannot be answered. There's a skeptic in the early quest for the historical Jesus named Lessing who famously said this. Next slide. There's an ugly ditch between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. He goes, listen, whatever happened, that was thousands of years ago. We are so far removed from that and those events, we can't really know what happened back then. And so in New Testament studies, they call this Lessing's Ditch. There's too big of a gap. There's been too much time. It's like the Grand Canyon. You can't get there from here. That's the objection. A lot of time has passed. There's no good way to know. Well, how do we answer that? 
Well, this was a question that I personally really struggled with when I was 18, 19, 20. The Jesus seminar was coming out and they were saying things that caused me to have serious doubts about the person and work of Jesus. And since then, I have become convinced of some very important truths in my life. And I believe that there's a a way that we can actually build a bridge from here to there. And I want to share with you how you can build that bridge too by using those letters as an acronym to spell out the word bridge so that it'll be easy for you to remember. And I want to start from the bottom up, okay? So the letter E I'm going to use to ask this question, did Jesus exist? Let's talk about the existence of Jesus. Now that might seem really, really obvious to you. Surprisingly, some scholars say the answer to that question is no. Probably the most popular proponent of this view today is Richard Carrier. He believes Jesus is a myth. According to him and other Jesus mythicists, all of our accounts of Jesus are either mostly or completely of a mythical nature. And so he says, even if there was a historical Jesus, pretty much close to nothing can be known about him. What do we say about that? One of my seminary professors, Dr. Daryl Bach challenged us with that question. He said, could you prove that Jesus existed without using the Gospels, without using any of the New Testament documents? Think about that. Could you do it? You can't use the Bible. You can't use any New Testament documents. You can't use the early church fathers either. You can't use anything that was written by a Christian. How would you prove that Jesus was a real historical figure? Well, one thing you could say is, let me introduce you to a Jewish historian named Josephus. Uh, He was a military leader, and he wrote about the history of the Jews in the middle of the first century, and he says, there was about this time, Jesus, a doer of wonderful works. Then he goes on to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus and his alleged resurrection. So there's some evidence outside the New Testament for Jesus' existence, But that's not all. There are actually nine other non-Christian sources which mention the historical Jesus within about 150 years of his life. When it comes to the ancient world, we are really lucky if we get one or two sources to confirm any historical fact. We have nine. And that's not counting anything that was written by the Christians. You could develop a whole basic outline of Jesus' life and ministry just from non-Christian sources alone. They say things like Jesus was an itinerant teacher, that he taught in parables, that he had a special relationship with God, that he performed miracles, that he uh, was crucified under orders of Pontius Pilate, and that shortly after his death, a number of his disciples believed and that he had been raised from the dead. All of those facts uh, we learn from non-Christian sources out there strongly attesting to the the fact that Jesus really existed. Uh, Even Bart Ehrman, who's kind of the darling of skepticism of our day, he's not a Christian, he's an agnostic, Uh, this is what he says about mythicism. He says, it is fair to say that mythicists as a group and as individuals are not taken seriously by the vast majority of scholars in the field of New Testament, early Christianity, ancient history, and theology. Listen, if Bart Ehrman thinks you're a little too radical, you should probably tone it down a notch. Most of what we know about Jesus comes from the Gospels, though. If you're a Christian, you need to know you do not believe in a fairy tale. You believe in a very real historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, who did amazing things in real history. John says in 1 John, we touched him with our hands, we saw him with our 
eyes. That means that you can really know him. I have found this to be so true and so real in my life. He's not just the Messiah. He's very real to me. He's a friend. Sticks closer than a brother. Most of the things we know, though, come from the New Testament. And so I don't think it's actually fair to say I have to prove that Jesus existed by using all non-Christian sources. That's actually a little ridiculous. What other historical figure would you ask me to prove and I'm not allowed to use anything written by any of his followers? That's just ridiculous. Craig Blomberg says it this way, to reject the New Testament Gospels as potential sources of excellent information, historical information about Jesus of Nazareth is to impose a bias on the study of history, which, if consistently applied elsewhere, would leave us completely agnostic about anything or anyone in the ancient world. In other words, we can't really know much about anything at all if we apply this standard consistently. And inconsistency is, is the sign of a lost debate. So let's just say Jesus existed. Can we just grant that for a moment? What can we really know about him? Can we trust the the Gospels as reliable sources of information about him? And that's the G point there, gospel reliability. I want you to notice I didn't use the word inspired. I didn't use the word inerrant, which I believe with all my heart, at least now I do. I didn't always, but I'm not using those words. I'm just saying, are they reliable sources of historical information? The answer to that question, I believe, is yes. Some people say, even if we do read the Gospels, those books were written, though, you know, 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus died. How can we trust in documents that are written that far after the events took place? Now, let's think about that for a moment and consider if that length of time is actually a big deal. Let's say the Gospels were written 50 years after he died. I think they were written sooner than that, but let's just say for the sake of argument, 50 years. 50 years ago, today is about the distance of time between now and like the Vietnam War. Can I just ask you something? Does anybody here in this room remember anything about the Vietnam War? Just raise your hand for a second. Anybody? Oh, a few of you. Anybody actually serve in the Vietnam War? Hey, can we thank our vets for their service? We appreciate you very much. Can I ask you a question? Um, Do you remember anything about your time in the war? I'll bet you remember a bunch about your time overseas pretty well. Here's the thing about memory. We remember events that are important in our lives. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't remember what I had for dinner last Tuesday. But I do remember important events in my life, like the days when my children were born. I remember distinctly the day when my daughter Michaela was born. It was September 10, 2004. It was a Friday. She was born in Texas at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas. I still remember exactly what happened. Julie's water broke. We went to the hospital in the middle of the night. I remember because I did not have enough gas in the car to get to the hospital, which is a bad habit that I have in my life, and I had to stop and get gas along the way. Julie was not happy about me and my stupid bad habit that, that night. I remember when we finally got there, I remember the color of the chair that I was sitting on next to her bed. It was blue. I remember making another mistake of complaining about how uncomfortable my chair was to my wife. She gave me a look that could kill. I said, man, I got to stop making, making this day a bad day for her. So then finally the time came. I remember when our little Michaela Faith was born. I remember how much she weighed. I remember that full head of hair. I remember she wouldn't stop crying. I remember lots of details about that day. Now, why do I remember those details? Because it was an important day in my life. Let me ask you a question. 
Do you think if you saw a guy walk on water, you might remember a few details about that day? Do you think if you saw a guy feed like 5,000 people with a couple loaves of bread, you might remember a few things that happened that day? Okay, what if this guy died on a cross, and then a few days later, he appears to you in bodily form? Do you think you might remember some of that? Of course you would. You see, the gap of time, just a few decades, is really not that big of a deal. And we actually have evidence that before the Gospels were written down, the truth about Jesus' life and teaching was being very carefully preserved. See, this is what gets criticized. Uh, Bart Ehrman sometimes will compare this to the game of telephone. He says, you know, it was kind of like telephone. You know how that goes. You whisper something into one person's ear and then to the next person, and then it goes down the chain, and then eventually it gets more and more ridiculous by the time the game is over. Is that a good analogy for the way they preserve the teachings of Jesus? Actually, no. You have to understand that in the ancient world, oral tradition was taken very, very seriously. It was very expensive to write something down. In fact, hearing something from an eyewitness was seen as more valuable as reading something that was written down. Uh, William Lane Craig describes it like this. He says, in an oral culture like that of the first century Palestine, the ability to memorize and retain large tracts of oral tradition was a highly prized and developed skill. From the earliest age, children in the home, elementary school, and the synagogue were taught to memorize faithfully sacred tradition. The disciples would have exercised similar care with the teachings of Jesus. It was not like the game of telephone at all. They were very careful. Here's how we can actually prove that. Uh, This is really cool, so pay attention to this. The Apostle Paul became a Christian within a few years after Jesus' death now. The church existed there. Historians will agree to this, even secular historians. There was a guy named Saul. He became a Christian. He became Paul. He started writing letters to the churches before the Gospels were all completed. In one of those early letters, 1 Corinthians, which was written around A.D. 54 in the springtime, he actually refers to something that's very interesting. Some people ask him some questions, and then in 1 Corinthians 7, they say, Paul, can I get divorced? And he says, not I, but the Lord. And then he quotes the exact teaching of Jesus in marriage and divorce that we find in the Gospels. And they say, okay, Paul, good question, uh, good answer. Next question, I'm, but I'm married to an unbeliever. Can I get divorced? And then Paul says, not the Lord, but I say, if you're married to an unbeliever and they want to desert you, um, you can be divorced. But if they want to stay with you, then you're obligated to stay married to them. This is my command, pass it around. What does he mean by that? See, what he means by that is that in terms of Jesus' exact teaching, that exact question was not addressed by the Lord Jesus himself while he was here. Paul is saying, here's a rule I'm giving to you as an apostle. This is authoritative teaching. But I want you to notice the distinction that he is pointing out here. He is making a distinction between his teaching and Jesus' teachings, which were well known and being preserved at this time. Paul did not know an answer from Jesus that would be relevant to that question. And so he does not make it up or put words in Jesus' mouth. He passed on exactly what he receives. There's reason to believe that they treated the sacred teachings of Jesus in a very serious way, not like the game of telephone at all. In fact, a better illustration that might be helpful for you is to think of it more like martial arts. 
And I understand this because one of our kids is in karate. But whatever martial art form that you, you may know about, you learn these certain moves. And there's like this series of blocks and kicks and punches that you, you have to do in sequence. And you have to perfect this technique over time. Those forms are passed down from generation to generation. You do not change the form. In martial arts, you would never even think of changing the form because you learn discipline and respect and you have pride in the fact that you're doing the exact same moves that they did so long ago. The instructor delivers to the student that which they receive from their founder. Look at the way Paul talks in 1 Corinthians. For I receive from the Lord that which I also passed on to you. For what I received, I passed on to you. Do you see how he's carefully passing down the Jesus tradition there? It's a very accurate transmission. We have every reason to believe that the teachings of Jesus were treated with care. But then what happened was, after a few decades, the eyewitnesses started dying. And so the gospel writers got to work writing all this stuff down. It's kind of like today how you see all these Holocaust survivors. All of a sudden, we're scrambling to get them on video before they pass away. And so the eyewitnesses began to write down what we have today as the Gospels. And so here's the question you have to ask as you approach the Gospels. Do the Gospels meet the criteria of historical authenticity? Dr. Daryl Bach does a good job explaining this in his book, Who is Jesus? Typically, there are about seven different criteria that are used to determine if something is historically credible, and they're up there on the screen. This is kind of technical. Bear with me for a minute. These are kind of the rules that secular historians use to determine the credibility and authenticity of ancient historical records. I'm not going to go through all of them, but there's three highlighted on the screen I'll just mention. Multiple attestation means, or actually go back to that last slide, multiple attestation means how many independent sources testify to one particular event. The more, the better. Like, for example, the Last Supper. Uh, It's written in this gospel. Here, I have it over here in this gospel. It's referred to in 1 Corinthians. I see it here. I see it here. I see it here. Where there's smoke, there's fire. The Last Supper happened. Multiple attestation is all over the place with the gospels. Embarrassment. This means... Is this something the church would never make up because it becomes counterproductive? Why would they make up the fact that Peter, the early church rock, the founder, was called Satan? That would only hurt their cause. Why would they make up the fact that the women who saw the empty tomb uh, were the first eyewitnesses in a day when women's testimony was not considered credible or admissible in court? That, That would not help your movement, and there would be no reason to make it up that way unless that's actually the way it happened. Uh, The last one there, Palestinian environment, is fascinating. And I want to take a moment to just share with you one very interesting example of a recent study that was done on personal names in the first century. This is found in Richard Baucom's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. They did this study of 3,000 names uh, that people were called in first century Judea. A a gripping read, it is not. Okay, So they did this study, and they used archaeology and... um, inscriptions, and they they find this list of Jewish names, male and female, in Palestine that show the different frequency from other Jewish communities in the ancient Near East. So what Bauckham does is he says, is there a connection between what the people were called in that Jewish community and what the gospel said people were called? Here's the names in order of their popularity. If you take the top nine most popular Jewish male names in Judea together, outside of the New Testament, 
they're 41% of the names used. If you take them inside of the New Testament, they're 40% of the names used. These names show up over the course of all four Gospels. They're written by four writers, all writing from very far apart from each other. It's kind of striking when you consider where the Gospels were written. Mark writing in Rome, Luke in Antioch, John in Ephesus, only Matthew writing in Judea. The correlation is remarkable because if you take these names and compare them with a Jewish community found in Greco-Roman Egypt, the most popular names in Greco-Roman Egypt at that time were Eliezer, Sabbateus, Papias, Dosthenes, and Ptolemies. Those names are not written in the Gospels at all. Why not? The answer is because the Gospels were not written about people living in first century Egypt. They were written about people living in first century Judea. How did they get this right? How did they get this so statistically correct? If I were going to ask you, take the the list in 2018 of the top 10 baby male names and then compare that to the list 20 years ago of the top 10 baby male names in Great Britain. Do you think you could see the same list there? No. It would be a totally different list. It's very difficult to get this exactly right. This shows us that the Gospels actually do bear witness to eyewitness testimony. They're written by people who had knowledge of the actual people and the actual events that they're describing in the first century. But it's not just that. They actually also get the right way to call them by their nicknames. Now, I have three daughters, and if I want to call them down for dinner, I probably don't say their full names, Alexandria, Michaela, Felicity. I probably just go down to the bottom of the stairs and say, Alex, Mac, Lulu, time for dinner. That's their nicknames. But if there was a father living in the first century, and he had a son named Simon who was playing outside, and he opened up his door, and he said, Simon! Dozens of Simons would come (laughs) into their house for dinner because it was such a popular name. Did you ever notice that the gospel writers, whenever they say Simon, make a distinction? Jesus has two Simon disciples, Simon Peter and Simon the Zealot. There's also a guy in the gospels named Simon the Leper. And then there's another dude in the book of Acts named Simon the Tanner. It's so easy to get a detail like that wrong. Yet the gospel writers get it right. Take a look in Matthew 10. There's this list of the 12 disciples. You know what's fascinating to me about this list? Look at how they know exactly when to make the distinction. Simon's called Peter. Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee. John, his brother. Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas. Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus, a low-ranking name, is just Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanian. Judas Iscariot is the one who betrayed him. See how the clarifications are all made in the right places? These name statistics have only been known in academics since 2003. Brand new evidence, and the gospel writers get it right. Powerful. Friends, the point is, these writers have an intimate awareness of what they're describing. 
The same could be said about their knowledge of the region's geography, botany, politics, economy, culture. I could go on and on. I don't have time. I could make a whole sermon out of every point today, but I just don't, you know. I encourage you, do your own research. There's some recommended books at the bottom of your outline. If you have questions, look them up. Check it out for yourself. There is so much more you could learn about this. But most of all, most of all, I encourage you to read the actual Gospels themselves. See, most of the people that criticize the Gospels, I found they haven't actually read the Gospels. See, it's there that we encounter the very living word with a capital W himself. And so I would encourage you to start there. So let me answer an objection about the Gospels. What about the differences that are there in the Gospel accounts? Can they be explained? Can the differences be explained? Some people say, wait a minute, the Gospels have these contradictions. At first glance, when you look at parallel accounts, sometimes that appears to be the case. There's these apparent discrepancies. Like, for example, let me ask you this question. How many angels were at the empty tomb? Is it one or two? All right. how, many, how many women went to go see the empty tomb Sunday morning? Was it one, two, three? There, there was this sign above the cross hanging just above Jesus' head. It had a few words on it. What exactly were those words? Or, you know, a a famous one is brought up by Bart Ehrman. He says, when Jesus died on the cross, did did he die in despair, like Mark says, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or did he die confidently, like Luke says, into thy hands I have committed my spirit? Ehrman says, that's a contradiction. You have to understand there's there's a distinction that must be made between differences and contradictions. Like with that last example, if you lay the two Gospels side by side, in Mark, it actually specifically says Jesus cried out another time. Now, it doesn't say what he said, but then Luke kind of fills in the gap for us. So those types of things, if you work hard, they actually can be harmonized. Recently, there was a book written about this by J. Warner Wallace called Cold Case Christianity. He's a detective who works with murder cases, and he makes a very interesting point about this in his book. He said, if you've ever worked with real eyewitnesses, you know one rule of eyewitnesses is they never tell the story exactly the same as one another, even if it happened five minutes ago. And when you see that, he says that's actually a sign not that they're wrong, but that they're telling the truth. See, if I'm going to create this fiction, I'm going to work this out. I'm going to get our story straight. But if you have real history, then those eyewitness accounts shouldn't match exactly. Otherwise, as a detective, you begin to suspect collusion. See, the Gospels are different, not because they're contradictory, because they're real. The disciples are telling the truth, not some story. It's a truth from their differing perspectives. Think of it like different camera angles, four different camera angles. Like Think of it like instant replay. Sometimes... When it comes to sports, there are these several different you know, cameras going, and they're all recording what happened, but sometimes only one camera angle gets the exact answer to a detail uh, that you need. That's the way the Gospels work together. Actually, the differences become quite helpful, because when you read them side by side, you get a much fuller picture. Uh, there's one example that kind of baffled me in the Gospels, where Jesus is at his trial, and he's being beaten, and they actually mock him, and they ask him, uh, you know, who hit you? And you read that, and you go, what a weird question. Uh, Who hit you? Why doesn't Jesus look at the guy and go, you hit me, you idiot? But then you read another Gospel, and you realize 
he had a blindfold on at that time. You go, okay, that's how these two gospels can be harmonized. That's how they work together. Uh, Wallace says it this way, when people have the opportunity to align their statements yet still refuse to do so, I know I'm getting the nuanced observations I need to properly investigate the case. The gospel authors and the early church certainly had the opportunity to eliminate alleged contradictions, but they refused to do so. As a result, we can have even more confidence in the reliability of these accounts. They display the level of variation I would expect to see if they were true, reliable, eyewitness descriptions. If the differences can be explained, and they can, then you have to start asking, okay, what do these Gospels actually say? And there's so much there that I could go into, but I just want to focus in on one thing. What claims does Jesus make about himself in those Gospels? And the next plank on the bridge, I'll just call the I am statements. What do we do with the fact that Jesus takes on the name I am in the Gospels, the very name that's used of God? What do we do with the fact that Jesus says things like, before Abraham was, I am? This is very unique. Great religious teachers point away from themselves. They don't say, look at me. They say, look at God. But Jesus' teaching is different. Jesus' teaching centers on himself. Jesus, who personifies humility, actually says, look at me. Come to me. When it comes to the question of spiritual hunger, those things in our lives that that just don't satisfy, that, that there's this void on the inside of us, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Who would have the audacity to say that? See, this is why Jesus is offensive. And Jesus knows that. He says in Matthew chapter 11, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The word there is scandalon. It means to be offended or outraged or 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 angry about someone's claims that they're making. Why? Because the magnitude of his claims are pretty remarkable. This is where I strongly disagree with the Jesus Seminar. What they've done is they've reduced Jesus down to a wise teacher, a Mediterranean sage who just goes around saying pithy sayings, who just so happens to be politically correct in our modern 21st century American culture. That doesn't make any sense of the actual portrait of Jesus in the first century Gospels. I agree rather with N.T. Wright, who says in his book about this topic, the gospel of Jesus is the story of Israel's God becoming king. If you look at Jesus' direct claims, you'll see this is what he said. Now, we don't have time to look at them all, but I do want to look at one carefully, because all these claims kind of come to a head the last week of his life, as Jesus becomes very, very open at that time. He's at his religious trial, and it's kind of like a grand jury investigation, and they're asking Jesus these questions, and he doesn't answer them at first, but then it all kind of comes to a climax when this guy named Caiaphas uh, looks right at him and asks him something very specific. Take a look at Mark chapter um, 14. The high high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need to hear any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. Wow, there it is. Now really, if you think about it, there's only a few possibilities here. C.S. Lewis said it this way, either this was not true, and Jesus knew perfectly well it was not true, in that case he was a fraud, 
Secondly, it was not true, and Jesus simply didn't realize it was not true. He genuinely thought he was God. In that case, he was deluded. Or thirdly, logically, there's only one other possibility. He really was and is who he said he was, the very Son of God. Now, a claim like that needs to be tested. But it was. In fact, Jesus is saying, test me right here in this passage. Darabach says, this is what Jesus is saying here. The prediction was, when you see that tomb goes empty, I've given you my address. My address is the right hand of the Father. And I share the glory and the presence of God. And that means you're accountable not only to the Father, you're also accountable to the Son. Think about that. This scene is a huge collision course with two trains. On the one train, there's this charge of blasphemy coming down the tracks. On the same tracks coming the other way is a train of Jesus' claims to exaltation. Those two trains are about to smash into one another. They're about to collide, and the question we, the readers, want to know is, who's right? Jesus gets his vote. The religious leaders get their vote. But on Easter Sunday, God the Father casts the deciding vote. And that leads us to the the next plank on the bridge, the resurrection. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? See, that's what the early followers of Jesus claimed to see. Now, you need to know the resurrection is not some legend that developed generations or centuries later. We have a very early creed detailing exactly what happened in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. James Dunn, one of the top scholars on this issue, says that creed most likely developed within a few months of the death of Jesus. We're not talking decades or centuries for time to pass so that legends can develop when the eyewitnesses are gone. We're talking months That's an incredibly early source where followers are claiming to have seen the risen Lord, which could have easily been disproven at that time. Historians drool over that kind of early source, yet we have it. And we have these four biographies of this obscure Jewish carpenter and all he said and did, detailing exactly what happened. You know what else we got? An empty tomb. And you know who admitted it was empty? His enemies. They never said it wasn't empty. They said, well, you know what probably happened? The disciples, they probably stole the body. But do you realize what kind of motivation they would need to have to do that kind of thing? The disciples, because of their claim of the resurrection, had to live lives of poverty, deprivation, and unbelievable self-sacrifice, and they were willing to proclaim that message to their deaths? None of them recant for a hoax? No. Peter was there after the darkest night in the history of his life when he denied the Lord. He was there that special Sunday morning and he and John went running to the tomb, stooped in, found it empty, went back. He and the 12 were there when Jesus appeared to him in bodily form. He was there when the risen Jesus had breakfast together with him on the beach and restored him to the ministry and said, feed my lambs. Peter said in 2 Peter 1, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He was there for the most incredible moment in the history of the human race when the Son of God conquered the grave. 
how else can you explain the explosive growth in the early church? How did it happen? Did they all get together and say, I got this idea. Let's invent a bunch of stories about Jesus. Let's invent a bunch of miracles. Let's invent some resurrection appearances that we never saw. And let's carry this sham to all the surrounding nations. And when we get there, let's denounce their gods. And when they tell us to knock it off, let's go ahead and carry this message on to our deaths. Who's in? That makes no sense. Ken Latterat, who got his PhD from Yale, asked this thoughtful question. Why, among all the cults and philosophies competing in the Greco-Roman world, did Christianity succeed? Why did it succeed despite getting more severe opposition than any other? Why did it succeed though it had no influential backers in high places but consisted mainly of the poor and slaves? How did it succeed so completely that it forced the most powerful state in history to come to terms with it and then outlive the very empire that sought to uproot it? It is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy, perhaps unequaled in our history. Without it, the future course of the Christian religion is inexplicable. Inexplicable. It's inexplicable. Unless. Unless. Unless Jesus really is who he said he was. Unless Jesus really did rise from the grave. Unless it's all true. Friends, it is. Lee Strobel was the editor of the Chicago Tribune in the early 80s. He was an atheist. His wife became a Christian, and he became very angry. Uh, He sought to disprove the resurrection of Christ. Instead, after a couple years of study, he became a Christian. He wrote the book Case for Christ, which was recently turned into a movie. It's actually on Netflix. You should check that out. The resurrection of Jesus, he says, is absolutely true. Which brings us to the final point on our bridge. If all of this is true, then we have a beautiful Savior. Jesus Christ shines with excellency. I speak for a living. I don't have the right words to describe him. He has so many outstanding facets about his character that we would normally think are incompatible in the same person, but in him, they are perfectly combined. For example, he has both high majesty, but also great humility. He has both a commitment to justice, but yet he is also full of mercy. He's both transcendent and high above all rule and authority and power, yet he is imminent and present and God with us even here. He's tender, but he's not weak. He's bold, but he's not harsh. He has these unbending convictions, but yet he's totally approachable. He is, as John said, full of grace and truth. Time magazine once described Jesus as the most persistent symbol of beauty, selflessness, and love in the history of humanity. You know, this whole time we've been talking about building a bridge back to the Jesus of history, but the true story is that Jesus actually was the one who built the bridge to us. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He came so that 
our sins could be forgiven. See, forgiveness is at the very heart of Christianity. Forgiveness is at the heart of what Jesus came to do, to make forgiveness possible. C.S. Lewis said it this way, a Christian is someone who forgives the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. This is the good news of the gospel. Friends, that means Jesus made a bridge to you. Jesus loves you. And I want you to know how personal that is, that the God of the universe wants to know you and loves you. Think about that. I have never gotten over that. In my late teenage years, 18, 19, 20, coming from a broken home, I was very angry and I walked away from God and I began to make some really terrible choices in my life, choices that I'm not proud of. I was looking for something else, something else that would satisfy. But instead, I found just the opposite. I was frustrated, desperate, and I found a complete dead end. In that dark place, I cried out to God, and I asked for his forgiveness. I asked for a fresh start, and I distinctly remember praying, God, would you light a fire in me for you? He did. Soon thereafter, I made this decision to go into the ministry and to leave my, my corporate job. It's my great privilege now to tell the story of Jesus. I don't deserve that. But you know what else Jesus did for me besides forgiving me of all my sins and besides a wonderful ministry? He gave me what I always wanted, a family. He gave me a wonderful wife, three beautiful girls, After we raised our daughter, Alex, when it came time for her to choose her college, she said, Dad, I've been in public school my whole life. I want to go to a Christian college. Nothing wrong with sacred, secular universities, but just the joy in my heart that she would want to make a decision like that to get to know Jesus better. She's studying abroad now. It was our first Thanksgiving without her, and um, she's kind of having fun over there in Europe. So she, she took a little trip over to Rome, Italy, and she texted me this picture of the Colosseum. And she goes, Dad, she's so excited to tell me. She said, Dad, my friend and I, who's not a Christian, we went over there. And my friend had no idea what happened there. And she explained to her, you know, for a few hundred years, this, this was state-sponsored persecution of the Christians in here. They would throw them in this coliseum to the beasts and to the lions. But if you go there today, it's just a shell. In fact, if you walk right through the emperor's gate and you look up, there is this big, gigantic wooden cross. You can't miss it. Testifying to the fact that all of these Christians died for what they believed. She says, Dad, I was explaining all this to my friend and she was so excited to be able to share the gospel with someone who is not a Christian. I'm telling you, in that moment, the joy I felt as a father to see my kid walk with the Lord and be proud of their Savior, Jesus, I just have no words for how grateful I am for what Jesus did in my life. Who is Jesus? He's everything to me. He is my Lord. He's the most important person in my life. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever, and one day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. Amen? Amen. Worship team, would you come? And as they come, let me just bring this to a close by asking you a very personal question today. 
As we come to the end of this series, this whole series is about having evidence for the Christian faith. And here at the end, I just want to ask you that question. Who is Jesus for you? Jesus himself asked, who do you say that I am? How do you answer that question? If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, it's not merely an intellectual decision you're making. There is a heart-based choice that you need to make to follow him. It is a decision in your will, in your heart of hearts, to turn and surrender your own life to the God of the universe who loves you, who sent his son to die for you. And if you've never made him Lord of your life, it would be my great privilege to help lead you in a prayer. Today would be a great day to do that. In fact, let's pray together.